Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We are on page 563, the middle of chapter 40. And he's going to explain why is it important for a Jew to do mitzvot l'shma, to study Torah and to do the mitzvah l'shma, in other words, to be motivated by a love for Hashem. What if you do the mitzvah and you're not motivated by a love for Hashem? You're not thinking of Hashem. You're not thinking about God. You're just doing it out of road, mechanically. You've still, you still have the mitzvah. So why, why is it so essential that you should have the intention? And as he says, that it, although the Talmud says a person should always study Torah even with a wrong motivation, even if you have an ulterior motive, why, the Talmud says, because eventually you will come to study Torah without any ulterior motive. In other words, if you would never come to study Torah with the right intention, the Torah would tell you, don't study Torah. Better not to study Torah. But since eventually every Jew will do Teshuvah, every Jew, even if you study Torah with egotistical intentions, since every Jew ultimately will do Teshuvah, therefore the Torah says, even study Torah today, even though now you're in a very dark place, you're not motivated by the proper motivation, nevertheless study Torah. So you see that it's an essential part of studying Torah, not only that you should study Torah, but that you should study Torah with a proper intention. But, that's the, but the question is, why? Why is that such an essential part to, to study Torah with a proper motivation? And it's only when you study Torah with a proper motivation that the Torah soars, the Torah is elevated and elevates you. Even if you don't study Torah with a proper motivation, as long as you study the Torah and do the mitzvah, right? The deed is what matters most. The action is what matters most. As he stated earlier, if you have all the intention in the world and you don't have the deed, you have nothing. If you have the deed, you don't have the intention, you're on the train, you're on the plane, you made it. Maybe you're in fourth class, but you're on, you're in. So that's the main thing. So what difference does it make if you do have intention, you don't have intention? Why is that so essential? That's the question he's going to address now. Although the Torah and the Holy One, blessed be He, are altogether one, for He and His will are one. And the Torah represents his will. Nevertheless, the Torah will not ascend on high without Kavana. The reason presently stated in brief. The words of Torah that one speaks are physical, as are all things in this material world. True, they are holy words. The divine life force within them is not concealed and veiled, as it is in other material beings. Yet, being physical, the words of Torah share with all physical existence a divine life force that is greatly contracted and limited. Therefore, they cannot ascend to the godly sephirot unless they are impelled by kavana, a spiritual intention generated by love and fear of God, which elevate the words of Torah and cause the divine will to be revealed within them. In the Altar Rebbe's words, the Holy One, blessed be He, fills all the worlds alike, 
yet the worlds are not equal in rank. The difference between one world and another is due to the recipients of the divine life force and is twofold. The higher world and beings receive an illumination infinitely greater than the illumination received by the lower. The higher ones receive this illumination without as many garments and veils as the lower ones. This world is the lowest of worlds in both respects. For the illumination of the divine life force within it is greatly contracted. To the furthest degree it is therefore corporeal and material. Furthermore, even this contracted illumination is clothed in many garments and veils. Until it is clothed in the Klippa Noga to give life to all clean, permitted things of this world, including the animating intelligent soul in man. As mentioned in earlier chapters, all permitted objects receive their vitality via Klippa Noga and can therefore serve either a good or an evil purpose. There are two limitations. One is that the difference between one world and the next, why one world is considered a higher world and the other world is considered a lower world, from God's point of view, there is no difference. It's the same God that creates and animates and sustains the angels and the angelic and the spiritual and the sublime. It's the same God that creates and animates and sustains the material. What, makes, what distinguishes one world from the next? Why is one world considered a higher world and the other world considered a lower world? The difference is in the, in the receiver. That in one world, in the higher world, they receive a greater illumination, a greater energy, a greater dose of energy, a more intense energy. Like within the human body, right? The brain has a much greater revelation of the soul than the feet. Good things come in small packages. The head, which is the smallest part of the body, contains the most expression of the soul. Seeing and hearing and smelling and, 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 and tasting and speaking and thinking. And, and it's all in this little tiny, tiny head. The leg has one function to walk. Look how big it is. You know, the greater the package in the store, the less is there. You know, the smaller the package, the diamond, the jewel, it's a small little package. So it all depends on the vessel. The greater the vessel, the more it's able to receive a greater infusion of light, of energy, and expression of the soul. That's one distinction. Another distinction is like the brain is able to receive the higher faculties of the soul, the ability to imagine and to create, to be creative and to, to comprehend, versus the leg, which is only able to receive a lower, a lower aspect of the soul, lower revelation of the soul energy, the ability to walk. In other words, the difference between one and the other, it's like you have a huge hole, the sun is shining, so you have a huge window, so the sun comes in in abundance, versus you have a tiny little hole, a peephole, which only lets in a drop of light. So the sun doesn't change. It's the same light. From the sun's point of view, it's the same light that's shining into the palace is shining into the people. But for the receiver, because of the people, you only receive a tiny little ray of light. Versus if you have a huge opening and huge window, you get a tremendous amount of light. So that's the difference between one and the next, a higher and a lower. Higher world and a lower world. But in addition, there's another distinction. And that is that the light of the sun doesn't come directly comes through a very thick veil. And you don't even see the connection to its source. It's like a, a light of a light. You don't see 
because of the thick veil, the light is very, you don't see the connection to the sun. So on top of it, being a tiny light, even this tiny light comes through a thick veil. If it were a tiny light and you saw a connection to the source, okay. But here, not only is it a tiny light, but the light itself also comes through a thick veil. Meaning that in this world, there are many thick veils that you don't see the divine connection. You feel that you have energy. You feel that there's life. You look at a grass, you look at trees, you see that it's growing, you see a life force. You look at an animal, you see that it's alive. You look at yourself, you see that there's a life. But you don't make a divine connection. You don't see that the life is connected to the source of life. So on top of it, in addition to it being a very tiny, minute expression of life, in comparison to the life of the higher realms, the life of the angels, it's a tiny light. It's a tiny uh, sense of light. It's like the, uh, the Talmud says that an angel is the third of the world. Every angel is a third of the world. In other words, if you take all the minds of this entire world, put it together, if you take two billion minds and you add them all together, that will make up the mind of one angel. So the energy in this world, even of a human life, is, is like so minute, like a tiny little people in comparison to the level of energy and life force that you find in the upper realms, in the higher realms, in the intelligent life, and other, other types, other higher levels of life, of being spiritual lives. We're not alone in this universe. There's, there's angels, there's a whole world of angels and spiritual beings, an infinite world. Of, so compared to that, we are the lowest of all the world because we are the tiniest expression of life. And to add insult to injury, not only are we the tiniest expression of life, but even that life is layered and layered with thick layers and covers. So it's like the light is coming through such a thick screen, you don't even see the connection to the sun. We feel that we're alive, but we don't sense anything divine. It's a total cover-up, a complete cover-up. And the truth, that where does life come from, where does all life come from? It comes from within, it comes from the divine. There's no... There's no it's not a mechanical event. All the scientists in the world can't create the life of a, of, a, of a fly. Life is a divine miracle. It comes from within. But we don't sense the miracle. We don't sense the miraculous. The astonishing miracle of life. Otherwise, we'd be jumping out of our skin. Nobody's jumping. Nobody's excited. No one even pays attention. No one even notices. Life? Take it for granted. What's the big deal? Just, so it's a total cover-up. So that's why the, our world is the lowest of all the worlds in both senses. A, to start off, the life force, the energy is so tiny, is so minute. Our whole frame of reference is so limited. And secondly, even that tiny, minute, little energy that we do have is so covered up and so concealed. And that's why it creates all the, all, all the physical items, all the kosher animals of this world, but they're still materialistic. Their whole being is about self-preservation. You look at a tree, you don't see its creator. You look at an animal, you don't see its creator. You look at yourself, you don't sense your creator. People go through their entire lives and deny that there is a creator. I feel the light in me. I feel... I, I feel... The divine. I do. Don't you? Well, that's... Uh, <laughs> that's, that's very... But that doesn't come... That doesn't come naturally. That's because you open your mind. That's because... I open my heart. Open your heart because you educated yourself. It's not something that comes naturally and instinctive. He's saying the world on its own, naturally and instinctively, you don't make that connection. You open your mind and you open your heart and, and, and then you realize 
course, you can open your mind and of course you realize that there's a God and then you realize everything is divine. And then you, and then you do jump out of your skin. Then you do see the miracle of life and then you appreciate the miracle of life and then that's where our relationship with Hashem comes from. But, but that's not something that comes naturally. That comes through education. Ego comes naturally. No one has to go to school to be egotistical. To care about self-preservation, that comes naturally. Six billion people have it naturally. You don't have to take courses. You don't have to work hard <laughs> to be selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. It comes very, very naturally. To be good, to be kind, to be selfless, to be... That comes from an awareness. That comes from learning. That's the difference in humans and animals. Animals, when they reach puberty, the life is over. No surprises. They reach their maturity. When a human being reaches maturity, puberty, that's when the life begins. That's when the mind opens up. It's an awakening. That's when they start opening and realizing that there's a whole world out there, a whole universe out there. There's a whole reality out there. When they start realizing that there's Hashem, and there's, there's, that becomes more real to you than the physical, natural, material reality that we perceive. So that's what he means, that the world on its own is the lowest of all the low. It's the lowest world. A, it's just a ray of a light. It's the lowest um, expression of energy that there is. And B, even that energy is completely covered up. You don't sense the miraculous. You don't sense the divine. Naturally, you don't sense the divine. You don't sense the miraculous. Okay, and therefore... Therefore, when the animating soul speaks words of Torah or prayer without kavana, the concealment characteristics of this world is absent, yet the contraction still applies as follows. Though these are holy letters, and thus, in this case, the klipa noga of the animating soul does not constitute a veil of separation, concealing or covering the divine holiness clothed in these letters. As Klipanoga conceals and covers the divine holiness in the animating soul when it utters idle chatter, and the divine holiness in the animating souls of other ritually clean living creatures, where Klipanoga likewise conceals the divine life force. So he's saying, but when you study Torah, these words are not, con- are not concealed. These words are holy words. You sense a divine connection. You're studying the divine mind. You're studying the holy words of the Torah. So the words themselves are holy. They're not material, physical. They're not ordinary words, secular words. They're not, this is not math, a science, or physics, or trigonometry. Or, this, is, this is the divine words. So the words themselves are holy. So you don't have the problem of the concealment. These words, there's no concealment here. So you don't have these words and there's no distortion. There's no distortion. This is holy words. It's clearly, the light is coming from the sun. It's clearly, it's connection to the sun is very clear. It's connection to its source. It's connection to the divine is very clear. These are God's words. These are godly words. It's the godly Torah. So unlike anything else, everything else in this physical world, the material, the physical, covers up on the inner, on the divine, on the divine energy, on the spiritual, on the soul. But Torah, there is no cover-up. Because the Torah is divine. The words that you're speaking are divine. So there's no cover-up, there's no concealment. Okay, and now, parenthetically... For though no place is devoid of him, and his presence is found in man's animating soul, 
even when he engages in idle talk and in the soul of all living creatures. Yet he is the most hidden one of all the hidden and is called a hidden God, for he is a hidden from his creations. So although the truth is that God is everywhere, there's no place empty of God. And everything that happens in this world and every word that we speak ultimately comes from God. But nevertheless, God hides. God conceals himself. That's God's mysterious ability to hide, to conceal. He's completely hidden. The word for this world is called Olam in Hebrew. Olam comes from the word Helem. God is completely hidden. As the Baal said, even when a Jew sins, the truth is everything that you do, it's only you're empowered by God. Otherwise, you couldn't you wouldn't cease to exist. The word chait, the Baal Tov says, chait is spelled out. Chait is the Hebrew for sin. Is ches, tes, aleph. Aleph is hidden. You don't pronounce the aleph. Chait. The aleph is written, but it's not pronounced. What does the aleph represent? Hashem, one. The master of the universe. Alufo shalolam. Aleph, the one, God. When a Jew sins, the aleph is there but it's hidden. It's written, but it's not mentioned. It's not pronounced. Because God is in everything. There's no space empty of God. There's no, you couldn't even lift your hand without God. You wouldn't cease to exist without God. At the moment, while you're sinning, while you're speaking, negative words, everything that you're doing, ultimately God is found in everything. But God is completely hidden. And that's God's mysterious ability to hide himself. He completely permeates your existence. He's creating you, he's sustaining you, he's animating you. And yet at the same time, you're denying him. And at the same time, he's completely hidden and completely concealed. How is that even possible? Only God can hide in such a way. So God is present, but yet he hides. He conceals himself. His reality is like distorted. You don't see it, you don't sense it. Similarly, the illumination and extension of vitality from him is hidden in many dense garments and veils and is finally clothed and hidden in the garments of Nobar, which completely conceals man's divine life force when he engages in idle talk and the life force in other animals, as stated. It is different, however, with the holy letters in words of Torah and prayer. Here, not only does the klipat, Nobar, not obscure godliness, but on the contrary, klipat, Nobar, is transformed to good and is absorbed into this holiness, as explained above. Thus, the second of two aforementioned traits that make this world the lowest of worlds, namely the complete concealment of divine life force in the garment of Klipat Nobar, is absent in words of Torah and prayer. But the first trait, the Altar Rebbe will now state, is present even in those holy words. They are physical, as are all things of this world, so that the contraction of divine life force that characterizes physical matter in general applies to these words as well. So the second point that the divine energy is hidden doesn't apply to mitzvot and Torah. Because over here there's no concealment. God is open, revealed, it's holy words, it's divine words, connected to Hashem. But you still have the first problem. That the energy in this world is so tiny. It's like a little people. See, even when there is no concealment, even if the light doesn't go through a thick screen, comes directly from the sun, all you're getting is a tiny little light. In other words, this world doesn't have the capacity to absorb anything greater. We're limited with what we can absorb and what we can take. 
So therefore, the problem, in other words, there's an inherent problem with the material world, inherent limitation with anything that's material. It's just too limited. Just like the stone. The stone is just limited. The stone has no expression of life. Not because the stone is distorting anything. Because the stone is just limited. It doesn't have even the capacity to grow. The animal life, the, the organic life is limited. It only has the capacity to grow. It doesn't have the, lim- the ability to roam like the animals. The animal is just limited. It doesn't have the ability to imagine, to comprehend. It can just roam and eat and survive. Can't wonder, can't think. So we are just limited. By, by our very nature we're limited. So even when there's no distortion, even when the stone is holy... But it's a stone. It's limited. And how much it can absorb? How much could be revealed? So there cannot be any revelation of God in until Mashiach comes. When this world will be the most intense revelation of godliness in this tiniest of all worlds, in this most physical, the most material of all worlds, when it will be the most intense revelation of godliness, even more so than in the upper realms. That will only happen when Mashiach will come. But until Mashiach comes, this world simply doesn't have the capacity to reveal to any, any level, any great level of godliness. It's just too tiny, it's just too narrow, it's just too limited. So all you can get is this, this tiny little ray, this tiny little... And therefore, there's no way that the Torah and the mitzvot could receive this, this spirituality unless you do the Torah, you do the mitzvot l'shma with a proper motivation. When you inject a spiritual intention to the mitzvah, when you do the mitzvah out of love for Hashem, when you do the mitzvah with something spiritual, then you enable the mitzvah to soar. You enable the mitzvah to become spiritual. And then the mitzvot are able to receive and to become to absorb and to be absorbed in a much more intense level of spirituality of godliness. So that's why you need the spiritual motivation. Without the spiritual motivation, you just, you just, the mitzvah itself is just too narrow. It's just too limited to receive any great intense level of godliness. So if you want this mitzvah to receive an intense level of godliness, the only way to do it is by the person doing the, by the person being spiritual and doing the mitzvah with a spiritual motivation, with an egoless motivation, with a selfless motivation. And the deeper the person invest in the mitzvah, the more the mitzvah itself will soar and the mitzvah itself will become absorbed in godliness. Nevertheless, the illumination from godliness that these words contain is contracted to the furthest degree since the voice and speech uttering words of Torah and prayer are material. Therefore, although Torah is one in Shem, word of Torah will not ascend to the Sfirot without Kavana, since the godliness within them is so greatly contracted. But in the case of prayer, decided with Kavana and Torah, studied with Kavan Mishma, the Kavana is clothed in, permeates the letter of speech, since it is their source and root. For he speaks these words for and because of this Kavana. Therefore the Kavana elevates the words to its own level, meaning to the tenth of either Yetzira or Buya. Depending on the type of Kavana, whether a kavana of intellectual fear and love, in which case they ascend to Bria, or natural fear and love, 
which elevates them to Yetzirah, as explained above. At any rate, the Kavana, which is spiritual, elevates the material words to the sphere of Yetzirah or Bria. There, in the sphere, uh, the ends of light shines forth and is revealed, meaning the blessed divine will vested in the letter and in the Kavana of the Torah that one studies, or a divine will in prayer and its Kavana, or in the mitzvah and its kavana, one's kavana too expresses the divine will, for God desires that men cleave to him with love and fear. This ends of light of the divine will radiates in the sphirot with infinitely great brightness that can by no means shine forth and be revealed while the letters of Torah and prayer and the mitzvot are still in this physical world. The Torah and Mitzvot contains the radiance of divine will even as they are in the physical world. But this radiance is altogether incomparable to the radiance of the divine will the Torah and Mitzvot contain when they ascend to the Sfirot of Yetzirah or Bria. For neither the radiance itself that shines forth in the Sfirot nor any part of it can be revealed in this physical world. This disparity between the respective levels of radiance of the divine will in the Sfirot and in this world will remain until the era of the end of days, when the world will rise out of its materiality and the glory of God will be revealed for all flesh to behold, as explained above at length. At that time, the divine will contained in the Torah and Mitzvot of this world will shine forth in all its splendor. Until then, however, this radiance is incomparable to that of the divine will contained in the Torah and Mitzvot insofar as they ascend to the Sfirot. So he says, although the Mitzvah itself is divine and the Torah itself is divine and it's 100% divine, that is true. But as far as the revelation, if the mitzvah, if all you have is the mitzvah, and there's no spiritual part of the mitzvah, there's no spiritual component to the mitzvah, you're just physically doing the mitzvah, you're physically moving your lips and mouthing the words of the Torah, the divine is limited. The divine cannot be revealed. It's just too narrow, it's just too limited. There's no revelation, because the physical world is limited, inherently limited. Not because there's any concealment. There's no concealment. The mitzvah is holy. The words of Torah are holy. But because it's limited, this world is so tiny, so minute, there's no revelation. This world, there's no revelation. It's just too small. There's no revelation of energy, there's no revelation of light. It's just the minutest revelation of energy. Therefore, there cannot be any revelation just by doing the Torah and doing the mitzvah itself. In order to have a revelation, there has to be a spiritual component. The more you reveal your soul, the more you're motivated to do the mitzvah because you have a love for Hashem or because you have a deep understanding of Hashem. And that is also the will of Hashem, that a Jew should love Hashem and be in awe of Hashem and have an awareness and appreciation and a sensitivity and a deep understanding. So when you fulfill that will, that will is on a spiritual dimension because you're developing a spiritual love for Hashem, a spiritual level of understanding. Therefore, that will is revealed. Since you're, you're expressing the will of Hashem on a spiritual dimension, on a dimension where, where there's more energy, 
There's much more energy and a much deeper energy and much more profound energy, much more revelation of the divine energy. And it's a mitzvah, so therefore the energy, the divine is truly revealed. So it's like the sun is shining in through a huge opening, a huge window. It's not coming through this tiny little crack. So you're letting in this huge amount of divine sun, the divine energy, you're letting in this huge... That's, so it's only because you're infusing the mitzvah with a spiritual element that you're doing the mitzvah with lishma for the right motivation. You're motivated by a love for Hashem, a feeling for Hashem, a connection for Hashem, that you allow the mitzvah to soar, you allow the revelation of godliness. While if you just do the mitzvah, there's no revelation of godliness. You have something godly, you're doing something godly. You're thinking godly, you're speaking godly, but there's no godly revelation. It's just too narrow, too limited. There's no revelation. But when you do the mitzvah, when your soul is on fire, and your soul is engaged in the mitzvah, and you're motivated to do the mitzvah because your soul loves Hashem and is motivated to love Hashem and to connect with Hashem, then the divine revelation, the, re- the divine is revealed in an open way. And when the divine is revealed, then... Godliness is revealed and open. And that's what God wanted. God didn't only want us to do the mitzvah. He wanted us that the mitzvah should be revealed. He didn't want us only to draw godliness down into this world. He wanted also that it should be a revealed dwelling place for God. God should be revealed and open to prepare for the ultimate, the Mashiach will come, when there will be this intense revelation of godliness in this physical world, in this material world. So the way to prepare for it is by now, here and now, today, you and I, by today becoming more spiritual and more sensitive and investing in the mitzvah and injecting the mitzvah with a spirituality, with a sensitivity, with a love, with a feeling, with an awareness, with an understanding, a conscious connection. The greater the conscious connection, the greater the revelation. That's what God wanted, a revelation, a conscious revelation. Subconsciously, it's divine whether we feel it or not, whether we know it or not, whether we're aware of it or not, whether we appreciate it or not. You do a mitzvah, you did something divine. You've brought the divine into this world. But God wanted it to be conscious, it to be revealed in an open way. How do you reveal godliness? The only way to reveal godliness in an open way is by you yourself becoming spiritual. By you yourself loving God, becoming a godly person. Not only doing godly, but by being godly, becoming a godly person being motivated to do the mitzvah because you want to touch the divine. You want to connect with the divine. You can do the mitzvah and you're not thinking about godliness. You're not aware of godliness altogether. But the more you do the mitzvah, the more you're aware of the godliness of the mitzvah, of the miracle of the mitzvah, the divine of the, the, the divinity of the mitzvah, and the more you're excited and you're inspired by the divine and by wanting, wanting to touch the divine and by wanting to consciously connect with the divine, the more you reveal godliness in a conscious way, in a revealed way. So depending on what level you reveal within yourself, that's the level to which you elevate the Torah and mitzvah. Either you connect the mitzvah to the ten svirot of the world of action, or the ten svirot of the world of formation, or the ten svirot of the world of creation, or the ten svirot of the world of emanation. Which means it's all God. But you have the way God channels himself and reveals himself in the world of action. And that's by doing the mitzvah in a respectful way. With a sense, I want to connect with God. So you're thinking about God on a basic level. You're respecting God. God is my king, and he's commanding me to do the mitzvah, and I'm his faithful, loyal servant, and I want to do the mitzvah in order to fulfill my obligation. I'm thinking about God. That's a basic, elemental 
motivation. So that connects me to the divine, to the ten sphero, the way God expresses himself in the world of action. It's not an intense revelation, it's a smaller revelation, a narrower revelation. Or, if I do the mitzvah with a sense of love, the natural love that each and every Jew has for God, then I'm connecting myself to the way that God projects himself and reveals himself in the world of emotions, the way God creates the world of emotions, the world of Yitzhak, the world of the angels. But I'm touching the divine. I'm connecting to the divine, the divine of the world of emotions. So the mitzvot are soar and are elevated to a much spiritual realm and therefore a much greater revelation. If I do the mitzvah, because I'm motivated by a deep comprehension, a very penetrating and deep understanding of godliness, of meditation, and focusing on godliness, then I'm connecting to the divine, the tense spirit, the way God manifests himself through the world of, of intellect. God creates the world of intellect. And the ten svirot, the divine, the way God is expressing himself through the world of intellect. So I'm connecting to the divine on a much higher level. Just like the world of intellect is much greater than the world of emotions, it's much deeper than the world of emotions, so too when I'm connecting to the divine of the world of, of, of intellect, the world of creation, it's also a much greater revelation of godliness. And then those rear and few tzaddikim, whose souls are from the world of emanation, who are completely egoless, who experience godliness, not only know of God intellectually or emotionally, have an emotional reaction to God, but actually experience godliness and become egoless and one with God, they touch the divine the way God manifests himself in the world of emanation, in the divine world. And that is the most intense revelation of God. So the Torah mitzvah that, that they do brings such a huge amount of light into this world. So it all depends on us. How much light we're going to bring through the Torah and the mitzvah. Each and every one of us, when you do the mitzvah, you have the divine. But the question is, will the divine remain hidden and concealed? Or limited or narrow? Or will the divine expand that you're going to bring in a lot of light into the world? So there's a difference how a tzaddik does a mitzvah and the way we do a mitzvah. When a tzaddik puts on tefillin, like the sun is shining, he's bringing so much light into this world. When someone from a lower level does a mitzvah, it depends. If your mind is engaged in doing the mitzvah and you understand godliness and you appreciate godliness and you perceive godliness, then you also bring a lot of light into the world. If you're just doing it naturally and instinctively because you have a natural love for God, okay, but at least you're thinking about God and at least that's what motivates you to be a Jew and to act Jewish and to think Jewish. So you're bringing the revelation of the world of emotions. Or if you're doing it out of a respect for God because I'm a soldier and I'm, I'm a servant and I'm, God, is command, God is my king and again, you're thinking about God so you're bringing a revelation of God, a small revelation of God. But if you're not thinking about God altogether, you're just going through the motions, you're just doing it mechanically by road because you grew up that way, you were trained this way, like a parrot that just trained to talk, you just do it. There's no heart, there's no soul, there's no, no weirdness, there's no consciousness. Then you've done something holy, it's a mitzvah. You're not doing anything. But nevertheless, there's no divine revelation here. Because it's an act, it's all it is, it's an act. You move your lips. It's too narrow, it's too limited to reveal anything. There's no revelation. There was nothing spiritual. There's no energy to allow the Torah and the mitzvah to soar to a higher level where there could be a divine revelation. 
a light. There's no light. And if you do the mitzvah with a negative motivation, with an ego motivation, because it's a career, you look at this being a rabbi, you're doing Torah and mitzvah as a career, or you, you do, you're motivated out of pure ego, then not only don't you bring light into the world, you actually bring darkness into the world. Through Torah and mitzvah, you're bringing darkness into the world. Nevertheless, the Torah says you should study Torah anyway. Because eventually you will do Teshuvah. Every Jew will do Teshuvah. But nevertheless, at, until you do Teshuvah, you're bringing darkness into the world. So although you're doing Torah and mitzvah, Torah and mitzvah are divine, but not only haven't you brought any light into the world, you've actually brought more darkness into the world, more ego, more arrogance, more darkness into the world. But the only way to bring light into the world is only through spirituality. And that's why being spiritual is so important. It's so essential. You can't just be a machine. Yes, the action is what matters most. But God doesn't want machines. God wants genuineness. He wants heart. He wants soul. He wants you to mean it. He wants consciousness. He wants awareness. He wants you to care. He wants you to pay attention. To do it out of love because He asked you to do it and you care about God and that's why you're doing it. Think about it. As the Kotzka Rebbe says, where is God? Wherever you let Him in. Let Him in. You need to let Him in. You don't let Him in. Yes, God is everywhere. But But there's no light. God wanted that the home should be an illuminated home. Don't just invite Him to a dungeon. He's there very well. But meanwhile, you shut the lights and it's dark and it's cold. I mean, is that a reception for a king? Is that, is that respectful? No. You invite God into your house. Light. Hashem loved light. It's light. It's illuminated. It's inviting. It's warm. It's friendly. Imagine you're bringing God and there's no friendliness. I couldn't care less. I'm not thinking about it. I'm doing it more out of guilt or out of it's a burden. I must never have to do the mitzvah. It's very unfriendly. God doesn't feel too welcome. God wants us to be a revelation of light. And the more we invest of ourselves into the mitzvah, the more heart we put into it, the more soul we put into it, the deeper, the more genuine, the more engaged we are, the more involved we are, the more revelation there is. That's what God wants. And that's why it's in a sense critical to do the mitzvah spiritually. That's why the Talmud says if you do the mitzvah without intent, without the motivation of lishma, for God's sake, then it's like a body without a soul. It's soulless. There's no energy. There's no life. There's no light. It's dead. It's a corpse. In the following note, the author Rebbe states that the revelation of divine will in a particular world caused by the ascent of Torah and mitzvahs thereto, a revelation which he describes as an hour of divine will or divine favor, produces a reaction in the midas of that world. With the revelation of the divine will, the midas fused and the attributes of severity are sweetened or tempered with kindness. This, in turn, results in an increased flow of divine kindness into the world. 
This effect of the mitzvahs is felt primarily in the fusion of the meters of Atsilas. There, in the higher worlds, there also shines forth and is revealed the supernal union effected by every mitzvah and by Torah study, namely the union of God's midot. The midot fuse with each other and the gvura, the attributes of severity, are sweetened by chasidim, the attributes of kindness. Through the hour of will favor, the blessed Ein Sof, meaning the revelation of the will of the Ein Sof, which signs forth and reveals itself in abundant and intense revelation, by reason of the arousal of man below, consisting of the performance of a mitzvah or occupation in Torah, in which the supernal will of blessed Ein Sof is clothed. The revelation of the divine will, meaning that the will clothed in Torah and mitzvahs, produces a fusion of the midas and a sweetening of the gvuros in whatever world the Torah and mitzvahs are sent to. But the main union caused by Torah and mitzvahs takes place far higher in the world of Atsilas. Only when Mashiach will come, then there will be an intense revelation of all the mitzvah that we've fulfilled up until, up until this day. That all the mitzvah that we've fulfilled will result in this intense revelation of godliness. But the way we achieve Mashiach is through the mitzvah that we've been doing all this time. But the result of the mitzvah today, its effect is, is above. is only above. Its effect is not felt in this world. When we do a mitzvah today we do affect a unity, a unification. Every time we do a mitzvah, every time we study Torah, we do affect a unification in the higher realms, in the higher world, within God Himself, so to speak. We unify, we bring the union of God's midot, although they appear to be opposites, kindness and strictness. But when you do a mitzvah, a mitzvah is greater than these attributes. Because a mitzvah represents the will of Hashem. The will is greater than the, the emotional attributes. Just like within a person, the willpower is greater than the emotions. The emotions are in the heart. The will doesn't have any vessel. The will is all-encompassing. will is all-comprehensive. So when you do a mitzvah, you're revealing the divine will and you're revealing the divine will in the world of emotions. Because every mitzvah also is connected to a certain emotional attribute. You have mitzvahs that are kind, like a mitzvah of tzedakah, which is like an expression of God's right hand, which is an expression of love. You have mitzvot of, 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 of separating, of tithing, of taking from yourself and sacrificing and offering it to another person, offering it to Hashem. So you have mitzvot that are restraining yourself, holding yourself back. You have different mitzvot, like the left arm, which expresses like restraint. So you have different mitzvot which express different attributes. But nevertheless, the overriding aspect of a mitzvah is that it's the will of Hashem. Will is the root and is superior to any emotional attributes. The will is, is a direct expression of the soul. The soul wants. There's no vessel for will. It's not like in the heart or in the mind. Will is is everything. 
Will is the soul, is the expression of the soul. So when you do a mitzvah, you're expressing the will of Hashem. You're revealing the will of Hashem. So when you reveal the will of Hashem, you have the ability to reconcile opposites, to take these two opposite emotional attributes of kindness and strictness, right arm and left arm, and to bring them together, to sweeten the restraint and to sweeten the strictness of Hashem, the concealment of Hashem. So this is accomplished every time you do a mitzvah. Every time you study Torah and every time you do a mitzvah. But nevertheless, this revelation takes place very high. It takes place in, in, in another dimension. It doesn't affect us in this world today. The analogy that's given is, you can have a treasure. You can have a treasure. But it's in a safety deposit box. And you don't have a key. It's there. You own it, but you can't access it. So every, we have a treasure. All the Torah and the mitzvah that we've been accomplishing and doing, fulfilling for the last 30, 321 years, every time we do a mitzvah, something tremendous happens. Something divine. We're unifying, we're causing unifications in the world of emanation between one divine attribute and another divine attribute by revealing God's will which is infinite and undefined and, and therefore it has the ability to reconcile opposites. But all of these revelations remain on high. It doesn't trickle down into this world. We don't sense the revolution that we're accomplishing when we do a mitzvah. We don't sense how each mitzvah is a jewel. Every time we do a mitzvah, every time we study a word of Torah, we're accomplishing something that's beyond our imagination. It's riches, it's riches and treasures that are beyond our comprehension. And we own them, and we possess them, it's ours. We've accomplished it, we've achieved it. So we have the diamonds, and we have the jewels, but it's locked behind the treasure chest. We can't access it. Mashiach will come, Mashiach will open the treasure chest, and then we'll be able to see all the jewels and the pearls and the diamonds that we've accumulated over our lifetimes and our ancestors' lifetimes. Then it'll all come pouring out, it'll all be revealed in this world. But now it's completely hidden. Do you think Mashiach will come in our lifetime? Absolutely, it's not even a question. No. Maybe now, tonight. <laughs> Amen. But the, um, the fact that we have Tanya on the internet, over 70 countries, that's not Messianic, what is? So he's saying that although this is accomplished through all Torah mitzvah, every time we do Torah mitzvah, whether it's done l'shma, not done l'shma, but nevertheless, it depends how you do the mitzvah, how spiritual you do the mitzvah, how spiritual you are when you do the mitzvah. So then, based on that, a reflection of this revolution that you've accomplished, this treasure chest that you're accumulating in the higher world of emanation, some of it will trickle down into the realm, to the lower realms, depending on which level you're at. If you're doing the mitzvah with a higher level of lishma, a higher motivation, based on the deep penetrating understanding and awareness of God, then a trickle effect of this unity, unification, will illuminate, will come down to the world of creation. If you do the mitzvah more of instinct, emotional instinct, then there'll be a trickle of this revelation in the world of, of revelation, etc. So that depends on us. But the, the accomplishment itself of the mitzvah, 
that the mitzvot are divine, and that the mitzvah creates an explosive revolution. With, it creates a unification within God Himself, so to speak. And it reveals God's unity, and therefore creates this unification. That's, that's no question. That's an objective reality. That's accomplished, whether you're aware of it, you're not aware of it, whether you do lishma, you don't do lishma. That's a fact. But we're not privy to it. We have no access to it. We don't appreciate it. The tzaddik, who's, who himself is so spiritual, who himself is so egoless, who himself has such a refined mind, such a refined heart, he is sensitive to it. That's why when he does a mitzvah, he jumps from joy. Because he gets a taste, he gets a revelation, a little illumination, a, li- a fire. He gets a little, uh, he lights a fire from, from the result of his mitzvah because he senses something of what he accomplishes through doing the mitzvah. That's why he's so excited about doing the mitzvah. He can't get enough of mitzvah. For us, a mitzvah is a burden. Because we don't sense, we don't realize, we don't realize what's going on. It's like imagine a scientist in NASA pressing a button. And not realizing he pressed the button and he just caused the shuttle to fly. He just caused the shuttle to travel millions of miles, to land on the moon or the, or the, or the uh, satellite to land on, um, you know, on Mars. He doesn't realize, I'm just pressing a button. So we do a mitzvah, we press a button, we're sitting here, we don't, we don't see anything. We don't see, we don't hear, we don't sense. So to us, okay, it's a mitzvah, I'm pressing, I, I don't know what I'm accomplishing, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't, I don't realize what's happening. The whole world is turning upside down, up there in, in the outer space, the whole world is turning upside down because of my, I pressed the button, I put on tefillin, I lit a candle, who knows what's going on up there? The whole universe is turning upside down. The angels are dancing and, and the, the, the divine world of emanations is a unification. Here? When is this going to end? <laughs> There's no sense. But it doesn't change the reality. The reality is that when we do, someone once came to Fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, he says he doesn't understand why Simchas Torah, everyone is dancing, everyone is so excited about the Torah. And what's the excitement? What's the big deal? The Torah is a pain in the neck. I mean, you have to do this, and you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you can't do that. Why is everyone so excited, jumping from joy? So he says, can you imagine someone who's deaf? Someone who's deaf. He's been deaf all his life. And he walks in, and this is the most beautiful music playing. And he sees people dancing. He doesn't understand, because he doesn't hear any music. <laughs> so he doesn't understand, why is everyone dancing? Why is everyone so excited? Everyone is jumping from joy. They never heard such beautiful music, such lively, inspiring music. They're jumping, they're ecstatic. And he's, he's deaf. He doesn't hear. He doesn't, he doesn't understand. Him, it's a mystery. Why is everyone jumping from joy? So when you're spiritually deaf, you're not, wave, you're not tuned in to higher waves, higher frequencies. It's very dull. You don't realize... But a Jew who's tuned in to higher frequencies, the more spiritual you are, the more you fine-tune your channels are. And the more you're in tune with spirituality, and the more you're in tune with, with godliness, then you jump from joy. The mitzvah, the joyful, are passionate, are alive. The more you sense and you realize, the more inspired you are by the mitzvah, the more you, you anticipate, you look forward to doing a mitzvah, you can't wait to do the mitzvah. You pour your, heart, your whole heart and soul into the mitzvah. It engages you, it involves you. The truth is, even if you're deaf and you don't realize what's going on, okay. yeah. you're pressing the button. Things are happening that are beyond your, your understanding. 
Every time you do a mitzvah, as he says here, as, he just, as we just read in the note, every time you do a mitzvah, you're creating a unification above. The Kabbalists talk about this. That's what he puts it in the note. This is something that the Kabbalists talk about at great length. How we achieve unifications. Not only in the spiritual realms, in the divine realm. Within the divine, we achieve unifications between God's attribute of kindness and between God's attribute of restraint. And we, we sweeten the judgments by, by revealing God's, by over strengthening God's attribute of kindness. And how do we do this? Through revealing the God's will. When we do the mitzvah, we're revealing God's will. So we, we bring down God's will. When God's will is revealed, when the source is revealed, then the attributes which are derived from the source also are all unified and become unified within God. And of course, the person receives the benefit from it. The consequence of it. When God's attributes are unified, when the severity is sweetened, then the severe judgments are sweetened against us. When there are severe judgments against, uh, against us, when you do Torah and you do mitzvah, you sweeten those severe judgments. And then things can t- turn around. Even negative situations can miraculously turn around and uh, could be sweetened. But nevertheless, that's what he says here. But the main union... The main union caused by Torah and Mitzvot takes place far higher in the world of Atzibut, where the core and essence of God, God's love, are united with their emanator, the Einsof, blessed be And that is found the core and the essence of the supernal will of the blessed Einsof, of which... The mere glimmer radiates in Beria, Yetzirah, and Asiya in each of these worlds according to its front. Now, although the soul of the person engaging in, in this Torah study on mitzvah does not stand from Atsilut, nevertheless, he is able to affect unity in the midot of Atsilut because the supernormal way which is closed in this mitzvah and in the case of Torah, it is not nearly close, okay? but furthermore, it is indeed the very Alaha and Torah that he is studying. So he's saying, although the person is not in the world of Atsilut, so how can we affect the unification within God himself, within the world of Atsilut, within the world of emanation? And the answer is, it's not because of us. It's not because of us. It's because of the, of the Torah and the mitzvot. Because the Torah itself is the divine will. So therefore when you do a mitzvah, the mitzvah reaches all the way to the divine will. Not because of you. You are not from the world of emanation. Your soul is not from the world of emanation. At the root, we all come from the world of emanation, but that's only at the root. Consciously, we're not on the level of the world of emanation. But the mitzvah is from the world of emanation, because the mitzvah is God's will. God wanted us to do the mitzvah. And the Torah is not only God's will, the Torah is God Himself, because it's God's mind, and God and His mind are one and the same, they're inseparable. So therefore, when you study Torah, you do mitzvah, you're reaching all the way to God Himself. And therefore, you can accomplish this tremendous unification. The supernal will is godliness, and is the Ein Sof, light of the emanator, of the Sefirot of Atsilut, since He and His will are one. And this supernal will is actually the source of the middle, since it was by his will that he emanated the, his middle 
which are united with himself. Therefore, by means of the revelation of his will, caused by one engaging in Torah or in a particular mitzvah, the Midod fused with each other, and the Gevurot are sweetened by the Hasidim at this hour of revealed favorable will. How can there be two opposites? How can you reconcile two opposites? When you say God makes peace, God makes peace on high between two angels. The camp of Michal, which is the angel of kindness. The camp of Gavriel, which is the angel of strength. Fire and water are opposites. God created them opposites. You have the prosecutor and you have the lawyer, the advocate. They are opposites. You have two different ways of looking at things. The cup is half full, the cup is half empty. You have two different approaches. One is not more legitimate than the other. You have two perspectives. And this begins all the way in the world of emanation. From within himself, God emanated these two attributes. There's chesed, there's gevurah. That's what you find within the Torah itself. You have the school of Shammai, which is very strict, very restrained, very conservative. And then you have the school of Hillel, which is very liberal and lenient and kind. So you have two different approaches, two legitimate approaches. How are you going to make peace between these two opposites? How are you going to sweeten the strength? And sweeten the strength means that you reconcile the two. When someone reconciles, it's not that you defeat one opinion over the other. Reconciliation means that both agree. Compromise. Not compromise. No, not compromise. Compromise means no one is happy. (laughs) No one gets what they want. Reconciliation means everyone is happy. How do you reconcile opposites? So, for example, that's the special attribute of compassion. You have the right hand and the left hand. You have the prosecutor. The right hand is is the advocate, the lawyer, the defense. You have the prosecutor. Comes along the judge and brings in an element of compassion in his judgment. What's compassion? Compassion is reconciliation. There is no comfort. There's no opposite to compassion. There's opposites to kindness or restraint. Lawyer, prosecutor, opposites. Fire and water. They look at the same reality and they come to two opposite conclusions. This one says guilty, and this one says, this one says not guilty. The right one says not guilty, and the prosecutor says guilty. Are they right? Are they wrong? They're both right. And they're both, they're both right. You have this perspective and that perspective. Comes along compassion. And there's one. Compassion reconciles us to. What does compassion say? Compassion says... Mr. Prosecutor, you're 100% right. The person is a crook. He's a criminal. He deserves to be punished. But have Rachmanus. Have mercy. Have compassion. He's human. Take into account his upbringing. Maybe he grew up in a broken home. Maybe it's, you know, there's a human being behind this. It's not just a court of law. You've taken into consideration the whole person, the circumstances... Yes, you're right. He is guilty. And he deserves to be punished. But have compassion. There's no argument to that. He's not arguing with the prosecutor. He's not saying you're wrong. You're 100% right. But even you can agree. Go a little deeper. That there's a human being here. A person is involved. Look at his background. Look at his history. Look at this environment. Look at the circumstances. 
Look at the whole person. Then don't be so judgmental. Then you can have pity. Yes, you deserve to be punished, but I'm going to have mercy and have compassion and I will exonerate There's no argument. He's agree- he gets everyone to agree. He gets everyone to be on the same page. It's not compromise. The, the, the prosecutor agrees wholeheartedly because he's taken into account. He's not arguing. The uh, defense lawyer is arguing with the prosecutor. So if I win, you lose. If you lose, I win. The compassionate one, the compassionate argument is not arguing with anyone. On the contrary, I'm taking everyone into account. I'm agreeing with you 100%, and I want you to agree with me, but we have to have compassion. That's reconciliation. That's why compassion comes from a much deeper place. That's why the right hand is... Is, uh, represents kindness. The left hand represents gevura, restraint. The center, the heart, represents compassion. That's the center. That reconciles the two opposites. And, just like you have the right brain and the left brain, also the right brain is like the right arm, the creative brain. And that's where kindness comes from. Then you have the, the logical brain, the analytical brain. And that's where restraint comes from and realism and and that corresponds to the left arm. But then the third brain, the limbic brain, the decision-making brain, that, maturity, the maturity brain, that's connected to the heart. And there's no separation. It's the same torso. Back of the spine, and it's the torso of the heart. And then you have also the right leg and the left leg. Also, the right leg is the Competitiveness, the entrepreneur, he's running, he's acquiring. The left leg is the, is the break, restraint. That corresponds to the left arm. But they're on the same side, the left brain and the right left arm and the left leg, but they're separated. Versus the male organ, which is all at the end of the body, which is all part of the same, the center. Because in all of these three, you're going much deeper. You're tapping into the the inner, the soul of the person. Just like maturity. Where does maturity come from? There are many, many brilliant people. Children are very brilliant, but they don't have maturity. Maturity comes from a sense, a feeling. It's more of a sense. When concepts become conviction, and they motivate you to do something, you know, and that's what helps you to make a decision. People who can't make decisions could be brilliant, but they can't make decisions because they see two sides of every issue. The ability to make a leadership the ability to be a leader, to be, a, to be decisive, comes from a deeper sense. You have to be able to feel the situation, and you integrate everything together, and then you come to a decision. You take everything into account, and you come to a firm, a clear decision. That's the, the mature brain. That's a much deeper brain than the other brains, the right and the left. And that's where compassion also comes from. Compassion is going a little deeper, not judging a person on the surface and labeling the person, but seeing the soul of the person. And the background. And the background, the soul, yeah, where the person is, is a little child that's trapped there. You know, you have Rahmanas. When you have Rahmanas, you can't hate a person. When you see someone who's arrogant, who's being obnoxious, who's being impossible. Once you realize that, uh, you know, arrogance is just a cover up for insecurity, and once you see that there's a little child, a little trapped in that, and it's just an act, he's acting out, you can't hate the person. You can have pity on them, and you can, lo- you can no longer hate them because you're going a little deeper. You're not taking people on their surface. You go a little deeper, you see the soul as a real person, as a whole person. 
And then, of course, the human, the organ, the male organ, which of course is where the sperm passes, where you create a, a life. And you, you give everything to your child. You give your whole essence to your child, not just the detail. Your potential. That's why children many times surpass their parents. Because parents give to the children everything they have, not just their developed self, even their undeveloped self, their whole full potential. So you see that these three, the center is more connected to the undefined, to the subconscious, to the whole person. And that's the idea also, that's what he's trying to say, that when you come to this, when you reach the will, the will which is the center and the source of the consciousness of these divisions of the emotions, the emotions are already defined, are already divided. There's a right arm and there's a left arm. There's kindness and there's strictness and restraint. But when you get to the root and the source of it, which is the pure will, which is pure soul, which is undefined, once you reveal that, then there are no opposites. Then you bring the opposites together. You reconcile the opposites. Just like compassion brings opposites together. And that's what's accomplished every time you do mitzvah. Every time you study Torah, and you do a mitzvah, and you're revealing the divine, you accomplish a unification, a sweetening of God's, of God's attribute of strength. A unification, an intense revelation of God. Every time we do a mitzvah, any one of us, not because we are souls of the world of emanation and we reach so high and so deep, we're so godly. No, it's because the mitzvah themselves are godly. The Torah is godly. So the Torah touches so deeply, it touches God Himself. So when you reveal God Himself, then miracles happen and the impossible happens and, 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 and you achieve this tremendous unification. But nevertheless, this all remains, these are the treasures and the pearls that we're acquiring. And we have been acquiring for the last 3,321 years. But alas, it's still in the treasure. It's still locked up in the treasure. The treasure has not yet, yet been opened. The Rebbe said that not only do we have the treasure, but at this point in time, God even gave us the key. <laughs> so we have the key as well. But we still have to open it. We have to open it yet. Because if we have opened it already, we would, instead of sitting here on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, we would have already been sitting on the Upper East Side of Jerusalem, overlooking the Third Temple, and al Rebbe himself would be giving the Tanya Shir. And you wouldn't have to be uh, tortured anymore. But, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and I guess, well, and then you'll have the schus of taping, taping with al Rebbe himself. Um, and will be doing it? Absolutely. It says, whatever you do in this world, you're going to do in the next world. You're going to do when Mashiach comes. So, if this is what you're doing, this is what you spend your time doing in this world, who else is going to have the merit of doing that? The one who didn't do it uh, now. <laughs> uh, also, yeah, also, you need someone who knows what he's doing. <laughs> um, so, we have, well, we have the keys. Good news is we have the keys, and it's really up to us. We have to open the treasure. It's waiting for us. The chest is waiting for us to open it. But, uh, but as of this moment, it hasn't happened yet. We haven't yet achieved this intense revelation. You know, we don't feel this intense revelation of godliness. I mean, I speak for myself. Maybe people in this room do feel, but, you know, when I walk down Park Avenue, as of yet, I, you don't feel yet this intense revelation of godliness. You walk down the canyons of Manhattan, the business offices of Manhattan, you don't yet sense this intense revelation of godliness. Wall Street in particular... You don't see yet, yet, not yet. You don't yet sense this intense revelation of holiness. You're not seized by a sense of holiness. When you walk down Fulton and Wall Street, not yet. Do you see it when you walk down Kingston? A lot more than... Uh, <laughs> to be honest, 
<laughs> but also, not yet. There are moments. You feel it within yourself. Yes, but that's not enough. That's spiritual. That's personal. It's subjective. That's a spiritual revelation. When Mashiach will come, it will be in physically manifest. It will be intangible. This world, this tiny little world, will have the most intense revelation of Godliness. It will be palpable. You'll feel it, you'll experience it. Even with your eyes closed, you'll see it. The Rebbe says today, you have to open your eyes. You open your eyes, you'll sense that we're living in the Messianic era and that Mashiach is imminent. Mashiach will come even with your eyes closed. You won't even have to open your eyes. Your eyes closed, you'll feel it, you'll sense it. It'll be so pervasive, it'll be all around. That hasn't happened yet. I tell you, one time you do feel it in Crown Heights. Believe it or not, next week is Lag Bomer. We're not going to be having a class next week, Lag Bomer. Lag Bomer. It's an amazing feeling. Like Ba'omer, you can physically feel what it's going to feel like when Mashiach comes. It is a, usually a parade in Crown Heights and everyone comes together. Last year we were, I was there two years ago with the whole family, last year we were in Miran, like a million Jews. You, there, you can physically, on the day of Lag Ba'omer, you can say, honestly, you can physically taste and feel what it's going to look like when Mashiach in this physical world. That's why like Bomer is such a joyous holiday, such a special, special holiday. Like Rabbi Shimon Bayechai, the author of the Zohar, the author of the Zohar. He was a soul of the future. He was a, a citizen of the future. He came to give us a taste of the future. With his Sefer, we will leave the exile. The whole Tanya is here to articulate the Zohar and to explain it in a way that everyone could access, everyone could appreciate. So that's the one time I can say that you can physically, walking down the streets, you can physically sense. You see the unity. All Jews together, unified. It's the most intense, it's the most indescribable feeling. You really get a taste of the future. That's the only time I can say physically, you can, I felt Mashiach walking down Kingston Avenue with tens of thousands of Jews walking down this parade and this march together on the day of Lag Omer. Other than that, unfortunately, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Maybe tonight, maybe now, but as of this moment, not yet. So we have the key, we have the treasure, all we have to do is open it. Who besides the Tzadik can do it with Lishma? Every one of us can do it with Lishma. No, I know we have potential, but who, who? All we have to do, firstly, on the basic level, is when you do the mitzvah, you have to think, I'm doing this out of respect. God is my king. And out of respect, I'm doing the mitzvah. God respects us. Don't forget the king, by definition, has a tremendous respect for his subjects. Because without the subjects, he's not king. So what he's saying is the subjects are real to him. He's, the king, by definition, shows a respect. It's like the customer, the, the owner, shows such a respect for the customer. Because without the customer, you're not in business. That's why in marriage, you show such a respect for your spouse. Because without your spouse, you're not married. <laughs> it, by definition, there's such a respect. So God respects us. And we, in turn, show respect for God. So just by being motivated, you're making the blessing. Baruch atah Hashem alakeinu God is king. He has a right to command me because he's my king. And I respect him. And I show respect for him by doing the mitzvah. So I'm thinking about God. That's the lowest level of Lushmah. At least I'm elevating the mitzvah to the ten svirot of the world of, of, of creation. So there's some sort of godly revelation, godly connection, the touch of the divine. 
And that's what he's talking about here. Lishma, in order to touch the divine, there must be a Lishma. On the basic elemental level. As we're going to learn next week in the note, the different levels. Then you have a higher level of Lishma. Where you're doing it with a sense of, of instinct. Or so. Your instinctual love for God. You love God and you're doing it. A deeper level. And, uh, and you're doing it with a deep understanding of God. And, and a love that's motivated by that understanding. Which is an all-encompassing love. So that's, that's a much higher level of Shema. Then, of course, you have the level of the Rebbe, of the Tzaddik, who's the, the ultimate level, where he's completely egoless, and he experiences godliness, and his whole being is godly. And, of course, that touching the divine, that's the highest level of touching the divine. And when you touch the divine, you bring the divine into this world. But otherwise, this world itself is not capable of receiving a divine revelation. It's too narrow. Till Mashiach comes, this world is just too tiny. It's too narrow. It's imp- it doesn't have the vessel and the vehicle to receive this godly revelation. It's only when Mashiach will come that miraculously this whole world will be completely transformed. This world, which is the lowest of all the worlds, will become the highest of all the worlds. We'll have a more intense revelation than the highest, highest level. Because God himself will be fully revealed and fully manifest in this world. It will be a home for God. God will say, I feel at home. He himself, his essence, his core and essence will be completely revealed. No concealment, no hiding, no projecting, no limitations. Completely revealed with his here down, so to speak. Completely manifest, completely revealed in this physical and material world of all worlds. And this is unique to the Jewish, to, to the Torah, this belief that this material and physical world will be the ultimate manifestation of God. The ultimate revelation of God will be in this limited, tiny, narrow, conscious world that we live in, human world that we live in. This world will, will, will experience the most intense revelation, far superior than all the spiritual realms and higher levels of consciousness in the upper realms. They will pale in comparison, be completely insignificant in comparison to the revelation, the intense revelation of God's essence, core and essence in this physical world through there's only one way to achieve this. Through the physical fulfilling of the Torah and the mitzvah. Not through meditation, not through spirituality, not through high levels of conscience, not through feelings. But only through the physical fulfillment of lighting the Shabbos candle, physically taking the match and lighting the Shabbos candle at the right time before Shabbat, not Thursday. Can't make Thursday night into Shabbos. But I want to go skiing on Friday. No, Thursday night is not Shabbos. Friday before the Shabbos putting on the tefillin, eating the kosher, physically doing the mitzvah, that's the only way. He's saying it's not enough just to do the mitzvah. You, want to, you also want to touch the divine. You want to sense the divine. You want to be inspired by the godliness of the mitzvah, divinity of the mitzvah. The only way to do that is by being motivated lishma, thinking about God, being aware, somewhat aware of godliness. And that should be a motivation for you to do the mitzvah. Then the mitzvahs are elevated that realm and then you bring light into the world you bring a lot of light into the world a lot of the divine light into the world the Rebbe would always remind us that we are a unique generation there's never been a generation like ours and there never will be we are the transitional generation the last generation of gullahs of exile and we will be the first generation of Geula, of redemption. What an awesome privilege we have. 
and what a sacred responsibility we carry on our shoulders. So what are we going to do about it? How are we going to bring the curtain down on the Golas once and for all? Well, Mashiach himself gave the secret away in his famous encounter with the Baal Shem Tev. He tells the Baal Shem Tev that when your wellsprings and the teachings of Hasidus will spread to every corner of the world, then and only then will Mashiach come. And therefore the Alter Rebbe sacrificed his life to carry out this directive to the Baal Shem Tev by writing and publishing the Tanya. And all the Rebbe's sacrificed themselves to publicize and to expound on the teachings of the Tanya. And the Rebbe, the seventh, the Shabbos of all the Rebbe's, published over 6,000 Tanyas, literally in every city of the world. And now, for the first time in history, through LessonsInTanya.com, Tanya in depth is available and accessible 24-6 to hundreds of thousands, Jews as well as non-Jews, in dozens of countries all around the world. Now that you've had the personal experience and the pleasure to study the Tanya, we ask you to please partner with us to make the entire Tanya available and easily accessible to each and every Jew and to the entire world. Please help turn the wish of Mashiach, the dream of the Alter Rebbe, and the vision of the Rebbe into a reality. On behalf of all of us here at LessonsInTanya.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. And a special thank you for the good deed that you're about to do. In honor of your tzedakah, we will merit the coming of Mashiach now when we'll learn Tanya from the Alter Rebbe himself. Thank you.